I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Contentious Politics, a mini-series from the Undercurrents podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Contentious Politics, the podcast from the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, which is delving into the legacies and impact of the Arab Spring a decade on, and also thinking about key political dynamics within the Arab world going into the future. This is the third episode in the miniseries so far. If you've missed the other two, then I would highly recommend going back to hear those conversations. For this episode, Dr. Lina Khatib, Director of the Middle East and North Africa Programme, is joined by Dr. Allah Al-Aswani, the Egyptian novelist, scholar and civil society organiser, whose latest book, The Dictatorship Syndrome, explores why authoritarian political systems have spread and are developing across the Middle East, but also the wider world, and trying to diagnose the conditions which allow for such systems to emerge. I hope you enjoy listening. Thank you so much for joining this podcast from the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. I'm Lina Khatib, the director of the program, and it's an absolute pleasure to be hosting Dr. Ala Al-Aswani, who is a renowned Egyptian author, public intellectual, columnist, teacher, amongst other things, and also, of course, a dentist uh, by profession before uh, turning to the literary world. Our conversation today will build on Dr. Al-Aswani's body of work, reflecting on the last 10 years in the region, in the Middle East and North Africa region as a whole, but also looking maybe into, into the future to try to understand what we are focusing on in our work at the uh, Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House about contentious politics uh, in the Middle East. So thank you so much, Dr. Aswani, for uh, joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. So let's let's start with your latest uh, book, The Dictatorship Syndrome. Obviously, being a dentist by training, this book uh, looks at dictatorship as, a, as, a, as an illness and tries to diagnose why this symptom is or syndrome is, is, is there, not just in the Middle East, but actually globally. So if we are to take this and just zoom in on the on the Arab world in particular, looking back at the last 10 years, going through the uprising of 2011 that happened in Egypt, but also elsewhere in the region, and thinking about where we are in the world today, what would you say has been the enduring lesson that we can kind of distill just to start our conversation about? Well, I think uh, I was inspired to write this book because I was shocked at some point when I realized that the Egyptian people are, are too different. I mean, we were the revolutionary, I'm referring to the revolutionary, that we took to the street for freedom, uh, for democracy, for justice. And many people uh, paid a very high price. Many people got killed, uh, lost their eyes for freedom. But at some point, I realized that 
there are other Egyptians, and I'm talking about millions of Egyptians, who really don't understand us. They don't understand, they didn't understand us in the beginning. And then after that, they didn't like us. And then they turned against us at some point. And I had to to understand this. So, because I'm a writer in the first place. So, so I uh, read the history of the revolutions. And I realized that this happened everywhere with every revolution. And I tried to to understand why, and then I was uh, lucky enough to discover a 16th century French thinker, Etienne de la Boissy, who wrote a wonderful book called The Discourse of the Voluntary Servitude. In French, Le Discours de la Servitude Volontaire. That was the first idea about my book. Why people, because the dictator is one single person. Never he, any dictator would be capable to impose his will on millions of people unless the people are prepared, waiting, or accepting the idea of the dictator. And I, I found it, and I wrote that in my book, that this happened in all the dictatorships, all in the, at least in the 20th century. The people at some point were prepared for the dictator. Isn't this a bit similar to Antonio Gramsci's concept of hegemony? The sense that it's not all about uh, oppression being uh, kind of directed from the top as much as it's a prevailing sense of, in a way, absorbing oppression and, in a way, uh, almost automatically enacting it out? Yes, of course. But ironically, Etienne de la Boissy, who lived only 30 years, he died at the age of 30, and he wrote one single, very small book. He went even further. He said that this could be a complication of the dictatorship because I met that person when we were trying to convince the people in Egypt before and during the revolution that we cannot accept rigged elections, for example. Some old people told me, I was born, raised, educated, got married, had children, and retired under rigged elections. So why do you expect me now to join a revolution for something I have been accepting for 60 years. And that's exactly what De La Boissy said, that at some point, people who got adapted to the dictatorship don't need the freedom anymore. But he said there will be at some point a generation, a healthy generation. And this generation, despite the fact that they never felt or lived any freedom whatsoever, but they keep the dream. And this generation will make the change. And this is exactly what happened, at least in Egypt. So by that calculation, it's very early days to say the revolution of 2011 failed because it's only been, what, 11 years? We're in 2022 right now. 
uh, if it's a generation, a generation is around 30 years. So does this mean that for you, the story is obviously still unfolding and perhaps there's a glimmer of hope in two decades from now? I am very optimistic, I tell you. And I'm very optimistic. It's not an emotional situation or a position. I read the history. And you know what? When I tell you, for example, the Russia Revolution, you'll tell me, ah, it happened 1917. This is not true. The Russia Revolution began practically 1825 by a movement called the Decembrist movement. And then from 1825 till 1917, there were waves of revolution that, of course, were cracked down on by the Tsar. And then one Tsar got killed. And then 1917, the revolutionary people arrived, took over. You see, the French Revolution, after 10 years, the situation in France was catastrophic. Everybody was killed, and everybody was killing everybody. And then one of the sons of the revolution turned, I mean, decided to be an emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte, and then the old regime came to power, got back to power. So the revolution, no one single revolution in history failed because the revolution is a cultural change that gives political consequences. Accordingly, people, when they revolt, they change their conscience. And I must tell you that I do believe that the Egyptians who are living now are no more the Egyptians who used to live before the revolution. Something has changed, and the change is irreversible. And what is that fundamental change, in, if we can kind of zoom in on it? Well, it's the question is about humanity. Uh, I mean, you realize with the revolution that we are basically human beings, despite the fact that this is supposed to be evident. It is not in a dictatorship. So, for example, the way we see the woman has changed. The way we see religion has changed. The way we see the imams, the clerks, the people whose profession is religion, has changed totally. Why? Because we saw that these people are tools in the hand of the dictators. I saw that, of course, before, but when I used to write that, I was attacked by many people, very innocent people, good people, but they believe that you are attacking the religion because the religion for them was presented by the imams, the sheikh, the shiuch. Now they, are, they realize that the shiuch are human beings and they have their interests and they ask questions like, how have you made this fortune? And that, those questions were never asked before the revolution. Some, the relation between the citizen and the power and the state has changed. For many Egyptians, the president is no more our father, is no more the symbol of our uh, country. He is a public servant. Yeah, and, and a, very, a very flawed one as well. So, I mean, this is something you do talk about 
in your book, actually towards the end when you're talking about preventing dictatorship and how one of the tools is removing this myth, this idol kind of aura around the dictators. One of the things that you, if I may, just you repeat it a lot in your book, and I, and I agree with it, is this issue of the father figure. And, and you kind of just mentioned that word as well. Absolutely. We have this trouble. We have many troubles culturally. And I insist the revolution is a change of culture in the first place. We have the, the figure of the father everywhere. It begins from the president till your father and my father. The father is a kind of absolute power. The father, and it's, it's my, my moral ideal example is to obey my father, no matter what. And this is transmitted from politics, from our relation with the president. Second, we have a problem in the Arab world. We are not against the dictatorship by principle. We are, we become against a dictator when we get harmed. So if the dictator will give us a better job and he will arrest and torture the kids of our neighbor, it's okay with us. Of course, we will feel sorry for our neighbor. Until our own kid, our own son or daughter will be arrested and tortured, we will never, if we live, I mean, we have work, we have uh, medical care, we'll never be against the dictator. And you can see now this, I didn't believe, and that was one reason I wrote this book. People regret the days of Qazafi, of Saddam Hussein, and they present those terrible dictators as lions. So they say, Saddam Hussein, Assad al-Arab, the lion of Arabs. And I wrote many times that we really don't need any lion. We need a public servant. And here is a problem. I mean, what you're talking about really is also about social trust. So when people in a society care just about what happens to their immediate family, don't care that much about what happens next door. In your book, you also give the example of throwing rubbish outside when your own house is spotless. It's about lack of trust in a society. And surely dictatorships nurture this lack of trust. They want you to be mistrustful of your neighbor, because if you trust one another in society, then you might talk to one another and share experiences and share concerns and might then take that to the next level of mobilizing against the dictator. Absolutely. And it's a basic instruction in any dictatorship. Mind your business. You have nothing to do with other people. Otherwise, I will arrest you and you will be with them. So the idea of a dictator is that there will be he will, He must, especially after a revolution, and this is uh, exactly what's happening in Egypt. He must reconstruct the barrier of fear. And then to reconstruct the barrier of fear, he must crack down on everybody. And without reference, without rules of justice, for nothing. And the dictatorship or the dictator or the security apparatus they are doing, the generals 
are doing this intentionally. So if I say something against the president, I will be arrested. But if you press like, you will be arrested too. So that at some point, when you arrive home in the end of the day, you should be grateful. Absolutely. Yeah, the bar is very low in terms of what they want people to just be focused on, which is yes. just survival. Exactly. And if you, and I'm quite, I'm quite sure you did, because of your book, if you just read about how somebody like Saddam Hussein or Qazafi or Hafiz al-Assad and then Bashar al-Assad, those terrible dictators, how uh, they rule their countries, do not open your mouth. You open your mouth, you pay the price. And don't tell me you did nothing because I don't care, you see. Accordingly, you'll be grateful because you're not arrested, just if you're not arrested. Yeah, so the choice is really uh, quite limited for people like yourself, because a lot of people have, of course, been arrested and, and you are now in exile. So how can one make a difference inside when they are outside? The diaspora, and I'm not just talking about yourself, you know, the diaspora, uh, when it comes to the Syrian conflict, when it comes to other cases in which uh, people are on the ground under very dire circumstances, finding themselves having to flee to stay alive. How can you still keep keep going? Personally, I was not exiled officially uh, because, you know, the, the exile is a 19th century term where the governments or a particular regime uh, decided to exile somebody, and this happened in Egypt with some leaders, like Saad Zaghloul, for example. But I was banned from everything. You know, I was banned from writing, publishing, making any culture event, banned from any TV appearance, banned from everything. So at some point, they made my life in Egypt too difficult for me, especially a writer should write, you know. So if I'm not, if I don't have, if I'm banned from writing, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I should go somewhere else to write. But the idea of people who are abroad in history, yes, they make difference. I mean, they, I wouldn't say they won't make any difference because you have, for example, Lenin was, was abroad, was exiled. Uh, Khomeini was exiled. Saad Zaghloul was exiled. I mean, many leaders were uh, exiled. So the fact that the people who could make a difference are no more in Egypt could have a positive aspect because when you are abroad, you don't have, you don't have to make any compromise. If you are in Egypt, you must try even, you know, all the time to say what would be acceptable to the regime. It's not the case when you are abroad. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned Khomeini as uh, uh, one of the, 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 the examples, because in your book, you also clarify, of course, that when Khomeini came back to Iran, yes, as you say, he was influential while abroad, but when he came back, he instated a new kind of dictatorship that replaced the previous one. So it can go either way. I see. No, I see clearly because we, we, we're trying to analyze the revolution 
the political situation, the leaderships. And so I try to make the difference between the mechanism of the revolution and the results of the revolution. Because 1917, the, the Bolshevik revolution, I mean, they, they began by violence. Because as you know, uh, the Monoshevik and the Bolshevik, the Monoshevik won the elections and the Bolshevik took over. So that was a terrible thing to begin with, because this happened over and over. The same, the same thing in, uh, in, uh, was in Khomeini, because the, the, he began by executing everybody. So I think that we are, and we are doing a kind of scientific analysis. Accordingly, I don't care about the results, you see. Uh, it is not now, uh, our concern, our topic. Our topic is, how the revolution works. Of course, I'm against, I'm against the Iranian regime and Khomeini, despite the fact that I'm a socialist, but I was against the way the Soviet Union was ruling, and I'm against any dictatorship and any oppression. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the important things about your work, and especially uh, your book, The Dictatorship Syndrome, is it also shows that the Arab world is not an exception. Because, uh, you know, until today, uh, you still every now and then hear Arab exceptionalism being used to say why the Arab world is not democratic, but, you know, uh, in general. And you're, you're showing examples from across history and across geographies. Yes, of course. And this is, uh, I wrote that in the book. I believe this is the kind of covered racist argument. Why? Because the idea, this will reach, I mean, they will, will reach the point of Islam. I mean, when you say the Arabs are ready for a dictator because of their culture, and then the next sentence will be Islam, right? This is not true because I wrote in the book, we had dictatorship in the 20th century in Portugal, Germany, in Italy, uh, in many Western Christian countries, if you refer to the religion of the majority of people. No, it's the way of thinking. And as I, as I told you, and Labossi said that, that it's a complication of the dictatorship after being ruled by a dictator for 40 years. Uh, of course, I can understand that you don't think about freedom anymore. Absolutely. Now, as a writer, of course, you have written factual, we can call it that, books like The Dictatorship Syndrome, as well as fiction, which, of course, you're very renowned for around the world. I mean, um, I don't know, uh, last count was more than a million copies of the Yakubian building. Million, uh, one, uh, one million copies, in, uh, not in Arabic. I mean, the foreign languages. Yeah, yeah. And this was 2007. So I believe that. So you yeah. need a new census for. <laughs> for yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, this is, you know, a very widely read book. And, and when I look back at that book, I think it diagnosed so many of the issues that came to the surface with the revolution in Egypt in 2011. In the book, you know, we see the social inequality, the oppression, the corruption, why people get attracted to Islamist extremism. I mean, really, it, it, it just summarized 
the ailments, I guess, um, of Egypt. So fiction sometimes, you know, can can also shed light on 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 issues, not perhaps in a way that that makes it more accessible to the average reader who may not want to read an analytical column or a book about dictatorship, but they might want to read a novel. So I just wanted to just ask you about the role of fiction in uh, raising awareness and, and, and engaging with, with society in this way, just your reflections on your role as, as a fiction writer. That is a very important question and very dangerous one too. Why? Because fiction, the art is not uh, a direct political tool. You do not need to read the 600-page novel to realize that Sisi is uh, a dictator. You, you, can, you can read this in few lines uh, in the news. But my job is to explain to you how is it like, how you feel as a human being when you live under a dictatorship. The difference is very tiny, but very important. Because if we accept, and this happened under the Soviet Union, and it happened, it happens also with the, some Islamists. If you accept or you think that the art literature is a direct tool of change, you will write a propaganda. You will write a manifesto. You will, you will never be able, even if you're talented, you will never be able to, to produce art. The art is a human tool uh, in the first place. So we do care about the human being. And I'm telling you how people suffer and get deformed under a dictatorship. I try to do that. I must tell you that uh, I have, so far, I have had 37 international literary awards. The most important, many of those awards are very prestigious. The most important award I had was in Tahrir Square because this happened many times. You have a young revolutionary who will come to me to say hi, and he told me, you know what? I said, well, he said, I am here because of what you wrote. I believe this is the highest honor for any writer, even more important than all the awards I had. And this is why censorship and oppression when it comes to freedom of expression are so important for dictators because the arts do allow this. And actually, there was once uh, a study that I read about psychology saying that if you read fiction, you increase your empathy. Absolutely. And so, so of course, this means that uh, the, the, the space for artistic expression is going to be perceived as threatening uh, to go back to the issue of dictators. Ironically, I met Mr. Sisi twice in person. The first time he was inviting the people who are related to the revolution uh, to congratulate us and to say, he told me that, you know, you, you've made something great, something for our people. And he kept praising the revolution for many times, like for three hours or something. And the second time, 
He invited me uh, because he didn't like what I wrote. I was I used to write by the uh, I was not banned, and he was not the president. He was uh, the director of the military intelligence. You, I said, fine. If you would like to to arrest me, you can arrest me now. Or you, you would like to ban me from writing, I understand, because you don't like what I write. And he said, what? I tell you this. As long as I am here in Egypt, you will never be banned from writing. Never. Because even if we disagree, and he said very good things about The first week when he uh, became the president, I was banned from writing the first week. <laughs> So it's, I, I, I will write this one day, you know. Yeah, the next book will be uh, The Dictatorship <laughs> <Yeah>. Irony. Uh, <laughs> you um, uh, also mentioned some, some uh, previous incidents in history in which uh, sometimes dictators say certain things at certain times in order to present a particular image. So I guess in hindsight, it's not too it's not too surprising, you know, when uh, Nasser and in, in, in your book you mentioned an incident, uh, pres- former President Jamal Abdel Nasser in Egypt pardoned uh, uh, someone, or when you know, like th- these kinds of things happen. But it just goes to show also that, uh, and that's one thing I um, have been looking at in, in in my work on contentious politics. Not knowing where you stand is is sometimes more powerful than knowing exactly what is allowed and what is not allowed. So if you know this is allowed and this is not allowed, you might be able to navigate and predict. But if you don't know what is actually banned and what is not banned, then it leaves you on edge. And that is also a very powerful tool. Well, I I realize that uh, the dictator is talking, I mean, it's talking about the people in a way, what he believes about the people is something different. Usually the dictator is praising a kind of virtual people. It's like the people or our great people will always understand we are learning from our people, etc., etc. The people are the leader Actually, the dictator thinks that the people he's dealing, his ruling group of simple-minded, simple-minded people or kids. So he's very much concerned that an intellectual will change their opinion. And we have, for example, uh, Nasser said when he took over, 1954, he said to one of his ministers, I want the Egyptian people to be one single person, and I want this single person to obey me, to obey my orders. If I say they go to the right, they go to the right or to the left. And you will find that they found some quotes by, you know, dictators uh, who don't know each other, who never heard of each other, but they say the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And and this, again, we talked earlier about the issue of the father figure, and this leads me to a concept that I don't recall you actually using, 
in your book, but it's very much there, which is patriarchy. Ultimately, we're talking about a patriarchal system here in which you have to obey. You are the small person. They are the ones who know what's best for you, etc., etc. It's very much about the patriarchy. And it, uh, interestingly, of course, when we say the patriarchy applies to all genders. So it's not just something that is, is, is directed at women. It's a patriarchal system. Yeah, and it's it, what is worse in this patriarchal system is transmitted to the people. I have an experience because after, just after the revolution, I had a debate with the prime minister of Mubarak, Ahmed Shafi. All Egyptians know about this debate because it was everybody watched the, the TV and the debate. And I tried to apply the democratic, you know, the idea of the accountability. I mean, I talked to him not as a prime minister, the Egyptian way, but as a public servant. So I asked him, why did you do with this? Why, why did you do? And then he, uh, he resigned. He didn't resign. Uh, he was fired by the army because, uh, you know, his image, because of this anyway, because of this debate. Of course, I had many people who supported what I did. Ironically, I had people who said, no, that was too much. This guy is your father. And I said, no, my father died. He's not my father. And he is, as you, you, you have to deal with him as if he was your father. Why should I? And I had this argument with many people. So I realized, I understood that, no, there is the mentality of the father is still there, and it will take time to change. To try to close on an optimistic note, you said at the beginning, you're still optimistic eventually. Uh, no, no, I, I even disagree with this uh, still optimistic, uh, because it's still... Uh, you know, in the sentence, <laughs> it's not very sure. You know, <laughs> I have been optimistic. I am optimistic now more than any time before. That's reassuring. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we will, of course, keep tracking in our, in, our, in our work is what is happening on the ground and trying to say it's not game over. So it's uh, it's it's good that uh, you 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 share this diagnosis that there is uh, a long way to go, but uh, it's not it's not game over. No, we just uh, the lesson of the history is that the future is on our side. We will overcome. I'm quite sure. Well. Thank you. On that note, I want to say thank you so much for your time, for the frank conversation, and very much looking forward to hopefully seeing you in person again and hopefully also hosting you. Myself as well. Same. Same here. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of Contentious Politics. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you're generally enjoying the podcast, please do like us, share us on social media, and subscribe in whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this and leave us a review because it makes it far easier for other people to find us. 
If you'd like to find out more about the work of the Middle East and North Africa programme, the best way to do that is to check out the Chatham House website, www.chathamhouse.org, or to follow them on Twitter at ch underscore menap. We'll be back very soon with another episode for you. But till then, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.